0: Well, let's pray before we begin this morning. Uh, Father, thank you for your goodness to us. My goodness, we are a blessed, blessed people. As Pastor Brandon was reminding us this morning, our brothers and sisters in places like China uh, do not enjoy what we enjoy. And that scene is replicated so many places around the world. And yet we, we realize that Even as we hear some of the candidates for the upcoming election talk, we realize how quickly things could change here as well. And um, we do pray for the continued freedom in our land um, to not only worship together, but to be able to stand um, on our convictions, uh, have the freedom to um, be able to express them as we see fit. Um, but we also realize that um, places like China have taught us that difficulties don't always mean the end of faith. In fact, they often simply mean the screening of faith. They, they, they reveal what faith really is and what it isn't, and often the church is, has more spine Uh, when it's in difficult straits. And uh, so we just put all of that in your hand. We thank you for what we enjoy. And uh, we realize that our future is not here, or at least not this life. There's a new day coming, a new destiny coming for all of us. And I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would perhaps drive some of that truth a little bit more deep into our souls as we think about the people that are around us and what they do and don't believe. I pray that you would do a work of grace in us that would make us bold with our unbelieving neighbors and and, uh, teammates and classmates and colleagues at work. And um, I pray for uh, a heart for them um, like we would have for our family members that need Jesus. And we think of the team going out this afternoon to Lancaster to pray with people and offer them the hope of Christ. And We pray that there would be many that would join them. We pray that you would prepare divine encounters for them. Perhaps like that one week where a, a man who had just tried to take his life earlier that day uh, hears about the hope of, the, of, a, of a Savior who died for him. And I uh, pray that you would bear good fruit today. I pray against the enemy who hates you. He hates us. He hates our message. And I pray instead for the Spirit's uh, work among us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> the title of our message today is, Is There Really an Afterlife? As we continue our series on apologetics. Uh, Christopher Hitchens was an extraordinarily bright atheist, and uh, I, I would say entertaining. I found him entertaining as well. He was, uh, he was easy to listen to. Uh, he could be very caustic uh, against people who had religion in any form. And he was diagnosed with esophageal cancer in 2010, and uh, was pretty quickly determined that it was stage four. And he was fond of saying, um, before he passed away, about a year and a half after that, um, there, there is no stage five. He knew that this was cu- probably going to mean his end. Uh, but right up to the end, he continued to dismiss the prospect of some future existence for him. Take a look at this interview with 60 Minutes. He says he nearly died in January, when the chemotherapy began to destroy his innards. He called it a bad dress rehearsal. He's now in an experimental program with a cutting-edge drug that has shown some promise attacking this specific type of cancer cells that are eating away at his body. He's hoping that it will produce a long remission, but as usual, he's keeping two sets of books. I mean, I make preparations both to live and to die every day. But with the emphasis on uh, not dying, and on acting as if I was going to carry on living. How far do you think ahead? I hate it when people ask what the expiry date of my credit card is. I noticed it the other day, and so I said, what's the expiration date? I said, who wants to know? <laughs> Hitchens has been deeply touched by the letters and emails that he's received, many offering prayers for his recovery. What's needed, he says, is a medical outcome that would have to be described, given the poverty of the English language, as a miracle but he is placing his faith in science and medicine, not in the existence of a god. Is there anything that could change your mind in your weakened state? Well, I w- never to say there's nothing would change my mind. So, shall I just say that no evidence has, or argument has yet been presented that would change my mind. But I like surprises. I, I thought that was intriguing. Alike surprises. He would have welcomed, this was probably about nine months before he passed away, he would have welcomed a surprise of some afterlife. I fear the one he, the surprise he got was more than he bargained for. Everybody takes a final breath. It's a given. In October, I stood at the foot of my dad's bed at LGH and uh, kept watching for his chest to stop rising and falling. We knew the day was going to come. We'd known that for four days. And, and uh, I was staring at him, and all of a sudden I just saw there was, the chest wasn't rising anymore. And my mother was the only one in the room at the time, and I said, I think it's over. And everybody takes that final breath. You will as well. And the people that live next door to you will as well. And the people that you work with will all cease to breathe. And what comes then? Is there anything else? We've been talking about apologetics, and um, when it comes to the afterlife, apologetics and evangelism are far more closely tied than some of the others other topics we've been talking about are apologetics is primarily removing obstacles to faith, whereas evangelism is explaining faith, explaining the gospel. And so we said, you know, the, the conversation about the intricate design in creation, for example, is, a, is an argument for God. It's a, it's a way of helping open, uh, create a gate in this fence that some people have between themselves and faith. We talk about the universe, had a beginning. That's, that's a pointer to God. <clears throat> evangelism then, however, talks about what's the implications of that. I want to share with you about uh, a God who came to earth and who lived and died on your behalf and rose to life again. Apologetics, and then evangelism. But when it comes to the afterlife, there, there seems to be far more, uh, we're doing evangelism pretty early in the game uh, when, we talk about, um, when we talk about the afterlife. And the reason for that is that most people actually believe in an afterlife. In fact, it's interesting, the statistics uh, about the number of Americans who believe that there's some kind of afterlife, whether it's reincarnation or, or heaven um, or just something here on earth, has remained virtually unmoved for the last 75 years. About 83% of Americans believe that there is something after this. Interestingly enough, 13% of people who identify as atheists, even they say they believe in an afterlife. Why? Because everybody wants there to be an afterlife. The idea that this is the end is disconcerting and especially the closer you get to the end of the end. And you you want there to be something else. And I I would go further and say we have something hardwired within us that leans toward believing something else. This hope, this craving, this longing is not accidental. It's not just I'm, I want to have a little bit more life. There, there, there's something within us that points that direction. Often, however, the people who believe in an afterlife, their idea of an afterlife is detached from God. And so when we talk with people who believe in an afterlife but don't believe in our Christian faith, what they more often need is not to be convinced that there's an afterlife, But there's an afterlife that's going to come about and be run and administered by the way God says it's going to be run and administered. Because he rules it in an uncompromising fashion. Just like he rules his world. And so this morning I have three points in my message. The first one is kind of an introduction. The second two are questions for us to ask people about their belief in the afterlife. Uh, the first one, my first point is that G, uh, people need Jesus. Heaven is included. And here's, here's why I'm saying this. How many of you have been trained in evangelism explosion? Any, anyone have gone through that? Uh, a few, okay. So if you've done that, you know the first question that you ask someone that you want to talk to Jesus about is this. If you were to die tonight, do you know for sure that you would be going to heaven? And we could point to a number of other evangelism approach, approaches that would start there. In other words, they're starting with death. They're starting with the afterlife. Now, I have some concerns about that, and um, let me just say, I, I would rather we would do that than nothing. Uh, someone came to D.L. Moody 150 years ago and a woman said to him, I don't like the way you evangelize. And he said, well, how do you evangelize? And she goes, "Why well, don't. He goes, well, I like the way I do it better than the way you don't do it. And uh, if our friend Art and Pat Nodecker were here this morning, they would tell you the story of visiting a church in Florida and they didn't usually go to church. But that led to a conversation where, uh, because some people from the church came to their house and they asked them this very question. If you were to die tonight, Do you know for sure that you would be in heaven? And their response was, no, we know for sure we wouldn't be. And that led to them uh, hearing the gospel and responding to it in faith. So don't misunderstand me saying nobody should ever do this. I'm just saying, do we really want to start with death and the afterlife with an evangelistic approach? Because the fundamental issue is that people don't need heaven. They need Jesus. There's something broken in our relationship between uh, ourselves and the God who made us. And Jesus said, after all, that life or that uh, faith is primarily, is mainly a faith for um, life, not death. And that other kind of kind of reverses that. Jesus said in John ten ten, "I have come that you might have what life, and they might have it to the full." Now, obviously, uh, life goes on into afterlife, eternal life. But Jesus is not saying, I'm only here so you have a solution for what happens when you die. Um, making, uh, say it this way, making heaven most important makes reconciling with God unimportant, or at least less important. Whereas reconciling with God isn't the reward of those who gain heaven, <clears throat> excuse me, knows the reward of those who gain heaven. Heaven is the reward of those who been reconciled to God. Kyle Eidemann suggests in uh, his book, Not a Fan, becoming a completely devoted or committed follower of Jesus. What you win people with is what you win them to. What you win people with is what you win them to. So are we winning people to heaven or are we winning people to Jesus? You see the difference? Are we winning people to heaven or are we winning People to Jesus, and so I, I I would just caution you when you talk to people about the gospel. I wouldn't necessarily start with the afterlife. One of the things that I've noticed, and this was a this was a more common evangelistic approach back in the um, probably from the 40s on up to the 90s. It has been petering out as a preferred mode of evangelism. But what I uh, witnessed and observed over the years was it often led to false conversions. And say, what do you mean? If people hear that there's an afterlife and you've got heaven or hell, which do you want to pick? They go, oh, I'll pick heaven. Okay, what do I have to do to get there? Pray this prayer. Now, nobody has explained to that person the need to repent of sin. Nobody has explained to them the the fact that Jesus demands all of you and so we, people pray that prayer, and, but the, it's, it's only about a get out of hell card. And so they've never really factored in their life is a mess before God, and God will judge them for that unless they turn faith to Christ. So those are my concerns. People need Jesus, heaven's included, as opposed to people need heaven, and Jesus is included. That's kind of the approach that that evangelist, uh, evangelism tends to take. All right, let's get into the meat. Two main questions that um, we can ask people that uh, don't know Christ. And the first one is, what is your afterlife like? In other words, most of the people you're gonna talk to believe there is some sort of afterlife. You're gonna ask them the question, what's yours like? As you imagine it in your mind, what do you believe it's going to be like? And I have four questions underneath that to kind of answer that question. The first one is, and, and by the way, the reason you need to ask this question is that most people have not thought deeply about the afterlife. Most people have not thought deeply about the afterlife, and I say that uh, after almost 30 years of being doing funerals and being around family members of loved ones who've died. I cannot, I, and, and a lot of these are Christians, I, I cannot tell you how much misinformation is out there about the afterlife uh, or about dying or about how we know something about the afterlife. How many of you have heard the idea idea that if you see a cardinal, some of you are smiling already, you see a cardinal after a loved one's died, that's that's a message from your loved one that everything's okay. Do you know that doesn't come from the Bible? That comes from the whole spiritism world, which is anything but Christian. All right, second question. Have you ever heard the idea that if you find a penny after a loved one dies with the date of their birth on, that's a reminder, the, they're communicating, you've heard the concept pennies from heaven? That's the, That your loved one is communicating to you with this penny. That's from spiritism. It's amazing the amount of misinformation that's out there. And this is true of Christians as well as non-Christians. So you want to ask some questions to find out what do you really believe about the afterlife. First question under this question. Is is the afterlife that you envision, is it better than this life? Is it better than this life? Richard Dawkins, who is now the most famous atheist in the world since Christopher Hitchens died asks this question, how much more do you want? This, this is wonderful, he says. In other words, this life is so amazing and glorious. Now, he's 75 years old, I think, or 78 maybe, so he might change his tune in a number of years. And by the way, he's worth $10 million. And I thought, hmm, I wonder wonder if the almost half the world population that lives on less than $6 a day I wonder if they would share his sentiment. Or the battered wife. I wonder if she would feel that way. Or the children in Cambodia who are reminded by their parents every time they step out of their house, be careful of the landmines. I wonder if they would feel that way. This is so wonderful. Now, the next life is far more wonderful than this, but... Maybe not for the reasons that some people think. Let me take you to a couple of scriptures. Revelation chapter 21, beginning of verse 1, Revelation 21. And uh, for our purposes this morning, we are going to conflate all of the afterlife. Say, what do you mean? The afterlife will look different at different seasons. So if you would die today, for example, you don't get a new body today. You get a new body when Jesus comes back and you come back with him. The resurrection is going to take place down the road. So what kind of existence we have there is a little uh, a, a little unsure. Uh, furthermore, a day's coming when the Bible says God's going to destroy this earth and these heavens and create a new heaven and earth. And so that that's a way down the road future time. So um, I'm, and then we talk about, what happens immediately next as the intermediate state. The intermediate state, the final state. I'm going to draw all them together this morning and not make any distinctions, if you're okay with that, just to talk about the afterlife and the totality of what we're going to experience, some immediately and some further down the road. Revelation 21, that's important because this is way down the road. Verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared... And the sea was also gone you think about that 70% of the globe is covered with water 70% covered with water if all of a sudden this was all dry land can you imagine how much more real estate there would be for people to live on and so you think about a, a, a new earth you think about all the people that are in heaven well there's going to be plenty of room and don't forget There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. So there's going to be, appears to be, that there's going to be, um, you'll be, we'll be going back and forth between the heaven and the earth. And the heaven is, after all, 1,400 miles high. Um, Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. All these things are gone forever. That sounds really, really good to me. <clears throat> and then also in chapter 22, next page, beginning of verse 3. There will no longer, no longer will there be any curse upon anything. So we go back to Genesis chapter three, the curse that was applied to the man, applied to the woman, applied to the earth, earth. all of that is rescinded. No longer any curse upon anything for the throne of God and of the lamb will be there and his servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads and there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun for the Lord God will shine on them and they will reign forever and ever. I'm giving you this uh, because once you start to ask the questions of people, at some point, they're going to probably recognize they don't have a firm grasp on what their afterlife looks like. And you can share some of these scriptures. So in in God's heaven, uh, all the curse is gone. And so nobody dies anymore. There's no more sadness. There's no more grief. But also in God's heaven is the presence of someone that is transformational in our thinking about heaven. Let's go back to Philippians chapter one. Philippians chapter one, Paul says this in the middle of verse 20. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. So his preoccupation is to bring honor to Christ. However, he also also concerned about what he gets. He says for for to me verse 21, living means living for Christ and dying is what? Even better. That sounds weird. Dying is even better. And he goes on to elaborate. If I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. I long to go to be with Christ, which would be far better to me. In other words, to be in the presence of the Lord, to be fellowshipping with the Lord and to be worshiping the Lord. That's as good as it gets. And that's what I really long for. But I realize that I probably need to remain behind because I still have ministry work to do. You see, what makes heaven so gloriously great is not just that there's no more death, that there's no more tears, that there's no more grief, that there's no more sickness, there's no more bad stuff, no more broken relationships, no more broken marriages, none of that, no more children disappointing you. But it's where Jesus is. And that has to do with the next question, how long does it last? As you're talking to someone, you say that, afterlife that you envision how long does it last again going back to our friend richard dawkins he made the comment or the question raised the question wouldn't it be incredibly tedious after five the five, first 1000 years or so wouldn't it be incredibly tedious to have an eternity in bliss after the first 1000 years or so i i guess that's possible But we have to think about heaven in a different way than we think about earth here if it were designed to be all that we want it to be. You think about all the celebrities that have taken their own lives. Why is it that people who get all that they want end up overdosing on barbiturates or sitting in their car in the garage with the exhaust pumped into their car? Why do they do that? You ever read those articles and hear about somebody doing that? and you say, why? These people are multi-millionaires. They have people fawning over them. They're pictured on the red carpet at all of the shows with this beautiful woman on their arm or this handsome man holding their arm. And then all of a sudden, that marriage or that relationship goes out the window a, a year and a half down the road. They have everything that the average person thinks they would like to have, and yet they are not happy. Why? Because there's something fundamentally missing. You see, if you perceive heaven to be a, a state and a place, there it is both where you continually self-indulge. That would become tedious. Not in a thousand years, but in far less, as we see Hollywood displaying all the time. But what's different in heaven is this. First of all, we get a different mind. We get a new mind when we go, when we go to heaven. We think differently than we think here. And all of a sudden, the passion that sometimes we feel like we have to work up for Christ doesn't need to be worked up and if you're old enough to remember that song of the person who goes to heaven and they say i want the 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 title is i want to see jesus they met abraham and isaac jacob talked with timothy but the one i want to see i really want to see is jesus Because for the first time in my life, I grasp his significance. I grasp his glory. I grasp his majesty. And worship doesn't have to be fabricated or pushed or galvanized by music. Because I get it. The one who died for me, who gave his life for me, I I get it. I get it in all of its ramifications for the first time ever. And so heaven becomes not about indulging myself, but in glorifying him. And that changes everything. How long does it last? Far too many people have arrived at their destinations and been disappointed. Any of you watch The Good Place, the show on NBC, The Good Place? Anybody at all? Uh, Really fascinating. I, I just... I haven't seen, I've seen some stuff on YouTube, but I hadn't even heard about it until last week. And, and the, good place is, the good place is heaven, but it, you only get there, you only get there if you are, this is the description on NBC, if you are truly noble and really good. And I thought, well, that rules me out. And it's interesting, hardly anybody gets there. And what's kind of intriguing is I understand the final show that just took place last week or the week before. They have actually created a way out because it became tedious. So they've created a way out of the good place so that people can simply cease to exist. Oh, brothers and sisters, that's not what lies ahead for you. That's not what you have to look forward to. You have the opportunity to finally rid yourself. I have the opportunity to finally rid myself of my self-preoccupation and truly, as Hebrews calls us to do now, fix my eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of my faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its pain, and sat down at the right hand of the Father where he now intercedes for you and I day in and day out. What a day to finally be liberated from all the junk in here and all the junk in here and see the one who is exclusively worthy of praise and worship and adoration the way he should be seen. What a day. All right, third question. And we're still under the question, what's your afterlife like? What will people be like there? How do you imagine people in your afterlife? Will they be mists? Will they be spirit? And again, we presume that's what we will be like um, in the intermediate state. But there is a time coming when we will be resurrected and we will have new bodies. I don't know what they'll look like. I don't know if those of us who are old get to look young, I think. Banking on that. I, I, I'm, all of us who have, you have a medical condition or you have some sort of disability, impairment, all that's gone. There is some continuity between this body and the next body because Jesus in his glorified body still had the scars in his side, scars in his wrists and in his feet. Um, he could still eat. That's really cool. I'm looking forward to eating and not gaining weight. Pretty sure that's the way it's going to work in heaven. Counting on that. Um, but we get a resurrection body. Look at 1 Corinthians. We were, 1 Corinthians 15, we were there last week as well. Uh, verse 21. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, talking about Adam, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man, talking about Jesus. Just as everyone dies because we belong to Adam, in other words, we're Adam's offspring, his descendants, in the same way, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest, and then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. And so that's something to talk about with someone who imagines an afterlife that's not concrete, that's not tangible. There's no body there. Fourth question, How in your, um, in your afterlife, how does it get accessed? How does someone get to your afterlife? How do they get it? Does everyone get into your afterlife? And if not, what must a person do or avoid? And by the way, most people that you talk to about that will say, oh, well, we get into the afterlife by being good. And that's a great opportunity for you to segue into Jesus. And there's a lot of passages that we could use for this, but I picked John chapter 10, verse 9, where we hear Jesus saying these immortal words. John 10, verse 9. I am the what? Gate. Gate. <laughs> I am the gate. Those who came in through me, those who come in through me, will be saved. They will come and go freely, and will find good pastures. They will come and go freely, and will find good pastures. I thought of that this week. Um, I don't know how many are familiar with the Acts 29 network of uh, churches around the world. I think there's like 900 or so by now. They just fired their CEO. Um, Steve Timmis, who is in the UK. He was also a pastor of a church over there. They fired him for um, spiritual abuse. They call it bullying. And it sounds a lot like the, spiritual, or the shepherding movement back in the 1970s and 80s where there's um, real tight control over all the people in the church. And so in Timmis' church, for example, if you wanted to plan your vacation, you had to clear it with the church leaders. If you wanted to um, uh, have a family get together, and it was happening on a night when there was a church event, you had to clear it with the church leaders. It was kind of s- scary, weird stuff. And I, I look at what Jesus says here, here in chapter uh, ten. He says these people will come and go freely, come and go freely, and find good pastures. You see that kind of control and manipulation in the body of Christ run for your life because that's not how jesus operates jesus shapes our affections and our desires and our interests bit by bit with his spirit yes with the brothers and sisters in the body of christ and yes with the church leaders but when you see that kind of control exerted that's not the holy spirit It's a freedom when we're in christ last um Last question now, this is moving to my third point. We're asking these people, is your afterlife just? Is your afterlife just? In other words, does your afterlife offer both reward and judgment? Is there a place in your afterlife for both the wicked and the righteous? And to help them kind of process this, ask them, do you really want to be in an afterlife with Hitler or Pol Pot, Mao Zedong, or Joseph Stalin, or, or serial killers like Jeffrey Dahmer, or Ted Bundy, or John Wayne Grace, Gacy? Do you want to be where they're at? And, and the reason I want you to ask that question is because most people, again, they've not thought deeply about the afterlife, but they think that, oh, everybody goes to heaven. But deep down inside their soul, if you push their buttons with some names like this, my guess is they're going to say, oh, no, I don't want to be with Hitler. And I assume that hell, there is a hell, but it's just for people like that. So you want to push them, ask them, is your afterlife just? And we can tell them God's heaven does not admit the wicked. We're back at Revelation again, 21. Revelation 21, um, verse 8. But cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and all liars, their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And then, same chapter, verse 27 nothing evil will be allowed to enter nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life and listen increasingly Christians are running away from the belief and the teaching that is in the scripture that there is a hell a place of judgment and we do an incredible disservice to lost people when we say that. When we tell them that we really can't envision a kind and gracious and loving God having a place by hell, like hell, we're doing an incredible disgust, injustice to those people who need to know that there is an accounting coming. And we are doing an incredible disservice to our Savior who died so that people don't need to do that. No one talked more in the scriptures, no one talked more about hell than Jesus did. Just let that marinate for a minute. No one but the loving, kind, gracious Savior spoke more about hell look at Mark chapter 9 Mark chapter 9 The reason that uh, the I think the reasons that we are, are seeing more and more Christians run from the idea of hell is twofold. One, we have misunderstood God's holiness. We have misunderstood God's holiness. And the compatible issue is we have misunderstood the seriousness of sin. We've misunderstood God's holiness, and we fail to understand the significance of sin. This is what Jesus says in Mark chapter 9, beginning of verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. This is Jesus. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Are you wallowing in a sin right now and you really don't want to repent of it? You really don't want to turn from it? Jesus says it would be better for you to mutilate your body if that would turn you from sin. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand than to go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better to enter eternal life with only one foot than to be thrown into hell with two feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It is better to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the maggots never die and the fire ever goes out. Now that's the bad news of sin. The good news is found in the gospel which, one, exposes the sin of the righteous and pays for the sins of the wicked. First Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians 6, beginning verse 9. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? I just let that simmer for a second. Does that apply to you? And he doesn't say who have a... a an egregious pattern of doing wrong, but those who've done wrong. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, and he could have written down another 40 items. This is simply a representative list, not an exhaustive list. In other words, if you don't see your particular brand of sin in there, don't get excited. It's there. None of these things will enter the kingdom of God, which is what we read in Revelation 21. And then I love verse 11. All of the angst that comes from 9 and 10 is relieved in verse 11. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by, 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 by what? Calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Our friends need very much to know that there is a day of reckoning coming. And that there is a place both of reward and retribution. Both of vindication and of judgment. They need to hear that. Not right out of the chute. That's not where we start. But sooner or later, we have to make that clear to them. It's a matter of love. It really is. Silence is not golden when people's lives and eternities are at stake. So my encouragement with you to make use of these questions is that you, you exploit them in the moments when people are thinking about death. My guess is that most of you came in this morning, you weren't thinking about death when you came in here. Unless you lost a loved one recently or unless you got a recent diagnosis of something terminal. That will change our thinking. But most of us aren't thinking about death, and that's true of your unsaved friends. And so the times to have these conversations and trust them about the afterlife is when they're thinking about the afterlife. They've lost a loved one. They've gotten a scary diagnosis. There's a concern about a child. Take advantage of those opportunities. Remember, asking questions far more important, and that's the front end of our apologetics and our evangelism, asking questions. The answers come later. Sometimes we're at busy answering questions they're not asking, and we fail to answer the ones they are asking. Take advantage of those times. Be sensitive. Don't, don't drive a, a, you know, kind of a, a pile driver through their grieving heart. Tenderly ask questions led by the Spirit of God and get to the point you need to get to with them for them to know that there is hope. Father, thank you for the call that you have on our lives as believers to enter the lives of friends and family members, people that we know who don't know Christ. I pray that we would answer the trumpet to minister in people's lives and not say, well, somebody else will do that. I'm sure somebody else will be be better at this than I would be. Help us to answer when the call comes. Help us to love our neighbors and our friends enough to have these kinds of conversations. And not to be shy and bashful about the truth. The truth will not only set us free, the truth will set them free as well. And to go in the power of the Spirit, the confidence of the Word of God, to share the hope of Jesus that we have been blessed with. I pray in Christ's name.